Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Utopia Podcast, formerly known as Nonprofit U. Our podcast is an extension of our community, and we provide a forum where nonprofit stakeholders can share lessons learned and discuss the latest developments in the industry. My name is Valerie Leonard, your host. I'm the founder of Nonprofit Utopia, which is the ideal community for emerging nonprofit leaders. I work with nonprofit organizations to help them make a stronger impact to their clients and communities. You can find out more about us on nonprofitutopia.com, Facebook, and Twitter. I encourage you to follow us and to comment early and often using the hashtags nonprofitutopia, modern media relations for nonprofits, Peter Panapinto, and Antoinette Kerr. You can also leave comments on blogtalkradio.com forward slash nonprofit utopia. The chat room is open and you can post comments and questions. In order to use the chat room, you must open a listener only account. You'll find a link page for this episode right underneath the chat box. You can also email me questions at valeriusleonard at nonprofitutopia.com. I will say that if you're expecting an immediate answer, I won't be able to respond until after the podcast, and we'll be taking questions by our phone as well as from our chat room at about the 30-minute mark or so. The call-in number is 347-884-8121. Again, that number is 347-884-8121. We encourage you to sign up for our mailing list to keep abreast of the latest developments with the Nonprofit Utopia community. We've included a link to our mailing list in the comment section. First of all, I want to acknowledge Nancy Schwartz, president of Nancy Schwartz & Company. She introduced me to today's guest. Nancy Schwartz & Company designs, implements, and executes marketing and communications programs to help foundation clients nationwide to maximize their impact and profits. You can learn more at nancyschwartz.com. And in introducing today's topic, I'm going to use an excerpt from the foreword of Modern Media Relations for Nonprofits, Creating Effective PR Strategies for Today's World. And that was written by today's guests, Peter Panapinto and Antoinette Carr. Kivya LaRue Miller, the founder and CEO of Nonprofit Marketing Guide, wrote the foreword. Kivya writes, in the past, nonprofits could get coverage by sending out generic news releases to every reporter in town and could rely on the local paper to publish ripping grin photos of smiling people holding large checks. But if you're still using these familiar tactics, chances are, you're not getting the same results you did years ago. Today, a successful media relations strategy requires much more than press releases and post photos. It involves identifying which outlets are most valuable to your organization's mission, targeting the right people within those outlets. It means positioning your expertise online. It requires monitoring multiple platforms to ensure that your mission and work is being discussed accurately. You need to build relationships, be accessible, and offer valuable information and insights to reporters and editors. You can't do that without also listening well 
and understanding the nuances of news in this era. Sadly, too many nonprofits have been slow to adapt to this new reality. Modern media relations for nonprofits is written specifically for nonprofit communicators who are looking for practical advice for navigating this new world. It's the first book I've seen that will help nonprofits develop effective real-world media strategies and execute on tactics that will get their organizations more useful media placements. You'll learn how to build better relationships with key opinion makers and also ensure that your nonprofit is prepared for the next big controversy. And we have a lot of ground to cover, and that includes what makes a story newsworthy, how to make your special events media-friendly, the relationship between the media and nonprofit disclosure, and how to manage crises. So having said that, today's guests, again, are Peter Panapento and Antoinette Kerr. They're authors of Modern Media Relations for Nonprofits, Creating an Effective PR Strategy for Today's World. And just so you know, there is a link to the Amazon page for this book in case you're interested. Excuse me. Peter Panapinto is co-founder and philanthropic practice leader of Turn to Communications. This is a PR and communications firm that works with nonprofits and foundations. Peter has deep experience in the media and nonprofits. <coughs> Excuse me. Prior to becoming a consultant, he was a journalist for more than 20 years, and he most recently served excuse me as a managing editor at the chronicle of philanthropy <clears throat> i can't believe i'm losing my voice in the middle of an introduction please bear with me today he uses that experience to help nonprofits and foundations earn placements in outlets such as the wall street journal the new york times npr and fast company Antoinette Kerr is the founding CEO of Bold and Bright Media, a multimedia publishing company committed to helping nonprofit writers tell their stories. In addition, Antoinette works both as a nonprofit leader and as a journalist. She began working with the media as a writer for the Lexington Dispatch, where contributes a weekly lifestyle and living column. She is the founder of the White Folks LLC, and she was also named a Z. Smith Reynolds Sabbatical Award recipient and has been a TEDx presenter and is a contributor to the Nonprofit Marketing Guide. So, Peter, I want to thank you as well as Antoinette so much for being here today. And before we get started, Peter, I want to have you tell us a little bit about why you wrote Modern Media Relations for Nonprofits, Creating an Effective PR Strategy for Today's World. Well, thank you, Valerie. Thanks for the, the great introduction, and sorry <laughs> you're losing your voice. Hopefully you can uh, – I can talk a little bit, and you can get <laughs> get it back. Um, yes, um, yes. So, Antoinette – yeah. <laughs> Antoinette and I, uh, we actually <laughs> – You left me um, breathless. <laughs> <laughs> so we both um we both started uh 
uh, out on this book because we both had worked for, for many years actually covering nonprofits as journalists, and we had seen uh, some of the good and bad that nonprofits were doing with their media relations as they were pitching us and, and talking to us about stories they were working on. And one of the things we noticed along the way is that some nonprofits do this really well and others really struggle. And in a lot of cases, nonprofits mm-hmm. struggle because they don't have they don't have somebody who works full time on media relations. It, it's something that becomes part of somebody's job. Um, you know, mm-hmm. it could be somebody who works on communications or development or for really small organizations, even the executive director or CEO is the one who's charged with trying to do the media outreach um, as they're doing all these other things that they're, they're really good at and, and are able to spend a lot of time on. So we decided to put together a book that really aimed to help um, nonprofit folks, um, regardless of whether or not they have um, really any media relations training, um, to learn how to, um, to manage their nonprofit media relations strategies in an effective way um, and also paying attention to the fact that um, the media world is changing constantly and it's very different than it was um, even, you know, 10, 15 years ago before, mm-hmm. um, before so many of the changes that had happened with Internet journalism and, and, you know, the growth of things like podcasts and blogs and everything else that have, have really changed the way nonprofits are getting covered in the media and even how much um, – how much knowledge reporters have about nonprofits. So what we really aimed to do with this book was to create something that was really practical that could help people who, who might not have a lot of experience in media relations, learn how to do it effectively and learn how to position their nonprofits um, in a way where they actually get coverage. Oh, that's awesome. And Antoinette, did you have anything that you want to add before we go to the next question? I think I'd, I'd like to add that one of the things that we sort of uh, discovered in interviewing journalists as well as nonprofits, we discovered that, you know, nonprofits really want to have empowered stories. So, you know, it's not mm-hmm. just about getting coverage anymore. It's about getting coverage and that you want to share and really tell the story of your organization and helps to meet your goals. So as we created this framework that we call GREAT, um, and GREAT stands for goal-oriented, responsive, empowered, appealing, and targeted, we really wanted people to just think beyond, you know, sending that press release. So that's, that's mm-hmm. one thing we came to in our conversations with nonprofits that were doing this well and with um, mm-hmm. journalists who were working well with nonprofits. Oh, that's awesome. So, Antoinette, you wear several hats. You know, you own a public relations firm, and I, I believe you do some publishing as well, if I understood that correctly. And you also serve as a journalist and a nonprofit leader. So as one who is working on both sides of the journalistic aisle, so to speak, as well as one who has to develop her own marketing strategies for the nonprofit with which you work, can you tell us the relationship between the marketing development and the media relations? I think and that's a good point. And I always wondered why I wore both of those hats. And now I know, you know, that was by design <laughs> and for a reason. So as I was writing this book, mm-hmm. I was like, yes, these two worlds are coming together. 
So, you know, consistently <laughs> I would freelance and um, cover nonprofits as part of my, my beat and part of my territory. And then being mm-hmm. a nonprofit executive director and a board member and just having different communications roles, you know, I just saw that, you know, a lot of people in the nonprofit world did not necessarily understand how to communicate with the media. And Peter mentioned it before when he said that that's typically not one person's job, but it is so important for us to tell our stories. And so, you know, having been on both sides of that, I know that, you know, in the same way, journalists want to share nonprofit stories. And human interest stories are especially important to uh, or to newspapers and radios, radio stations mm-hmm. and television stations. So they really do want to hear these stories, but how we package it can be a challenge because, you know, we don't always mm-hmm. have the time. So we've given some quick tips, I think, in modern media about how you can do that. I mean, you can, you can really take this book and look at it from a long-term strategy, or you can take a mm-hmm. few tips out of it to your small nonprofit. Yeah, and you know what I I love about the book is the fact that you make no assumptions. You know, it's written in such a way that people who are not PR savvy can learn something. People who are PR savvy, they can, you know, get their skills up to date. But, you know, it really, I thought, you know, it was a quick and easy read, and, and that's not to take anything away from the book that doesn't make it any less scholarly, so so to speak, but uh, I thought it was an easy read. You can really hit the ground running, so to speak. And there's a lesson to be learned on every page. And having said that, Peter and Antoinette, I can absolutely, without punity, say I love this book because I am not a journalist. <laughs> I I am not bound to be objective. <laughs> so, this, this, is, this is a great book. And, and I'm not just saying this. You know, most people know that I can be very honest and you know this is a very very good book and and I thank you guys for coming on to the show to share some highlights. I know you can't give away everything but you know the the highlights are are awesome. The, the book is even better so I encourage people to you know click onto the link learn more about the book but don't learn so much that you get distracted. <clears throat> from our podcast, (laughs) but I do encourage you to go click onto the link, learn more about the book, and I hope that you can buy it and instantly start implementing some of the strategies. So, um, again, I really love the book, and you also describe what some of the changes are. So people might assume, you know, as you said before, that you can just, Send out a press release, you know, have these wonderful pictures and everything will be okay. Can you uh, reiterate some of the changes that you probably have already mentioned and, and then some more about what the current media landscape looks like these days? Sure. Um, and, and thank you so much for the kind words on the book. That The, the fact that it, it is resonating with folks who don't work in media regularly is exactly what we were hoping for. So we're really glad to hear that it hits a mark with you, and hopefully it does with others too. Um, mm-hmm. In terms of what's changed, um, it, it's the, the entire field of journalism has, has just been turned upside down really over the last 20 years or so. Um, with the advent of online journalism and mobile devices and, and just kind of the changes in our society, 
um, news organizations, whether they're newspapers or magazines or radio stations or, you know, TV news networks are, are all com- completely different now than they were before. Um, the business mm-hmm. model has changed. Um, newsrooms have been, tr- have really been cut in terms of the number of reporters that are staffed in a lot of um, traditional news organizations. Um, I used to, to work at a number of different newspapers in my career and, the number of reporters and editors who work in those newsrooms now is a fraction of what it was when I was there in the 1990s and 2000s. It's just there are a lot fewer reporters covering the beat, and as a result of that, um, there there's actually a lot a lot less expertise around areas like nonprofits, where in the past there may have been a reporter whose beat it was to cover the local nonprofit community or to cover national nonprofits. Um, now mm-hmm. um, it's become, you know, something that reporters kind of get dropped into here and there, and they don't have the same amount of expertise and knowledge of the field, um, and they also don't have the same relationships that they had in the past. And in a lot of cases, there's a lot more competition, too, for coverage because, you know, there are fewer reporters and there's, there's less room for them to cover things. Um, On the other side of that, though, there's a lot of opportunities and there are a lot more outlets now. There are websites and podcasts and blogs and um, video channels and all kinds of other things where there are a lot more niche opportunities for you to get your message out there. And so what's changed Mm -hmm. for folks who are looking to to try to get media coverage is that – you have to be a lot more selective about where you're pitching um, and, and really be a lot more thoughtful about, you know, where your key audiences are and, and how to reach them. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same point in time, um, you, you have to try to be a little bit more mindful about building relationships and really identifying journalists who actually are likely to cover your story and are reaching the audiences you want to reach. So instead of sending that press release out to everybody on your media list, which you may have done in the past and, and expecting Mm -hmm. or hoping that some of them would pick it up. um, What, what we talk a lot about in the book and a lot about um, with the great approach that Antoinette and I came up with for this is it really comes down to really doing your homework ahead of time, understanding where you're going to get the most value out of your effort and, and, and then customizing your outreach to really focus on those reporters and editors and other journalists who are most likely to um, be connecting with the audiences that you want to connect with and are most are going to be most Mm -hmm. interested in what you're pitching to them. So it's uh, become a lot more specialized over the years. Mm Mm-hmm. So I want to remind our listening audience that you're listening to the Nonprofit Utopia podcast, and we're speaking with Peter Panapento and Antoinette Kerr. They're authors of Modern Media Relations for Nonprofits, Creating an Effective PR Strategy for Today's World. We'll be taking questions from our listening audience in chat room at about the 30-minute mark or so. The call-in number again is 347-884-8121. And also, we've noticed that our international audience is growing, and we would like our podcast guests to reflect views from around the world. If you're listening from a country other than the United States, and you know of heads of NGOs that we should consider having on the show, please contact us at info at nonprofitutopia.com. We'd love to talk to you. So, Antoinette, one of the subjects that's near and dear to my heart is nonprofit disclosure and compliance. 
as you are probably aware, you know, so many organizations are involuntarily losing their nonprofit status because they have not filed the proper paperwork with the IRS on time. So you also make reference at one point about how important it is for nonprofits to share public documents, including their Form 990s with journalists. So we know that they're supposed to file and many lose their tax-exempt status because they don't know, and if they don't file within three years straight, they could lose it automatically without um, really sometimes not without their knowledge. So can you share with us why a journalist would want to review the 990 and is not just within the realm of the government, you know, reviewing whether or not they're in compliance? Well, I say that, um, you know, as as someone having worked in journalism for a long time and also someone who worked in a nonprofit, you know, I really feel like on both ends of things, you know, we're all about sharing information. So, you know, the nonprofit is really there for a public cause and, you know, should have the public trust. And so journalists shouldn't have to really fight to find your information, your 990, your finances. You know, I, I, I find that the more open people are, the more trusting, you know, as an organization, the more trusting people are. And, you know, mm-hmm. It's not just about those gotcha stories because I know a lot of times, and and Peter and I have both had that experience where journalists like to talk about, you know, salaries of nonprofit staffers. You know, it's really not for that purpose. It's for the purpose of knowing where the funds actually actually go. And, you know, as a journalist, you're there to check sources. So if an organization says Mm -hmm. they have an annual fundraiser and it supports a specific thing, or it, it it can also provide how much that fundraiser is a percent of your budget. So, you know, for example, we have nonprofits contact the media about, you know, we're having this wonderful event, and a lot of times journalists will want to know, okay, that you know, what is, is that a significant part of your budget? And the 990 can answer that question. And it's just another mm-hmm. way to be really honest about the source, getting the mm-hmm. information from the executive director who says that. So, uh, right. you know, those are some really good and healthy reasons to have the 990 in front of you. But, you know, it's also important um, if things aren't going well, if there is a crisis, then, you know, the media will want to know um, who's being paid, how they're being paid, you know, what's being mm-hmm. paid. That, that's also still very important, and it's still very much the public's business. So it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's a challenge, I think, for organizations that sometimes to remember to do their 990 for small organizations that don't have a bookkeeper or CPA just pushing that conversation. But, you know, you really should be putting your annual report, your 990, um, your budget, if you can. All of those all of those documents should live on your website. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it's really interesting. I really think, you know, getting to your point about transparency and, you know, how – prospective donors like to see that information and it it instills trust. I I believe those organizations that are more transparent actually are more likely to raise funds than those that are more opaque. And, you know, that's just my observation and and my hypothesis. Um, I, I guess you would know from experience running a nonprofit as well as, you know, being in that circle where you have your ear to the ground. 
Well, and we accepted, you know, when I worked in the housing world, we accepted enough government funds to um, be a part of the Freedom of Information Act, which is something that journalists will pull out when they want to know, you know, how government dollars are being used, and they don't necessarily feel like um, a government entity is is being responsive to their questions. So, you know, for my mm-hmm. organization, it was really in housing in the housing world, it was a, a no brainer. You really just you had to to share and disclose how your your money was being spent. And so it's a good practice to have. Um, it prepares you for those, you know, those bigger questions and those bigger dollars. Maybe you're not receiving a mm-hmm. large federal grant right now, but one day when you are, because, you know, don't we all want to get a big, huge grant one day? <laughs> yes, um, maybe yeah. when you are, you are already being transparent. So it's, it's an important practice. Mm-hmm. You had a comment that you wanted to add? Yeah, I think um, in addition to just the transparency, I think there's just there is media relations isn't just about kind of pitching your story and doing outreach, but it's also having information available for reporters when they're looking for it, when they're working on a story that you might not even know about. Um, so mm-hmm. having you know that information online, you know, having your annual report, your 990s, even having just prominently placed on your website or a contact person for reporters to reach out to if they are working on a story is really important. And it really helps you capture opportunities that you might not even be physically looking for when reporters are doing research and trying to find information about nonprofits or looking to find an example for a story. So all of those things mm-hmm. are real signals to a reporter that um, you're kind of open for business and, and willing to talk and be open with them about the work that you do. And, and mm-hmm. allowing them, you know, the tools to do a little bit of research and find out that you're legit and get a sense of, you know, your funding streams and, and the fact that donors are supporting you and that you have paid staff. All of those things are real good s- signals to reporters as they're doing um, their own research and, and looking for sources. So I, I just wanted to make sure we, we kind of talked about, you know, how that you know, it's it's almost like having an online storefront if you're a, a retail business. The more information you have there, the more likely people are going to, to buy from you and, or in this case, call you up and, and maybe want a comment from you for when they're looking for an expert for a story. Oh, awesome, awesome. So, Antoinette, what are some of the consequences for organizations, you know, if they refuse to share their Form 990s with the press? I don't know that there are any consequences um, for organizations if they don't receive government funds. I think the, the penalties okay. as far as the Freedom of Information Act, and Peter, you can speak to this. I don't know of any, but I do know if you are subject to the Freedom of, uh, Freedom of Information Act, um, if you receive government funds, then it really does make it um, you can be penalized and your nonprofit status could be in jeopardy if you're not sharing information under that, under that clause, but Mm -hmm. not necessarily just, you know, for an average nonprofit. Now, now the other penalty is, you know, the, the running joke that you don't make, don't make an enemy with someone who buys ink by the barrel. So if you're making an (laughs) enemy with the press, you know, that has its own consequences. I wouldn't do that. But uh, Peter, do you know of any, I think, I don't even think it's, I think any organization that, that is required to, file a form 990 actually has to provide it within a certain number of days. I think it's 30 upon request. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I, I think at this point, a lot of journalists, though, um, can find your 990 through GuideStar and other sources now. So rather than waiting that 30 days or 90 days or whatever that that used to, that 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 guideline is, they can just go find it themselves anyway. So you're better off just kind of giving it to them and being upfront <laughs> with it right away. I remember back when I was at the Chronicle, and this actually predated when I was there. Um, you know, they would have to send reporters out to to actually nonprofits around the country and actually go to their offices and request their 990s in person back in the back in the old wow. days. Um, to be able to to get them, but now you know with GuideStar and electronic filing and everything, it 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 unless you're not filing your your 990 on time, um, that that form is available somewhere anyway. So you might as well kind of mm-hmm. cut out the middleman and make sure it's available <laughs> and and send that <laughs> signal. I think. Yeah, and and just so nonprofits know, the IRS is very interested if you don't. Um, share that information. I believe on their complaint form, one of the things that you can report is whether or not they gave the 990 upon request. So regardless of whether it's the media or anybody, you know, as you said before, Peter, they're required to provide, you know, at least three years worth of 990s. But I didn't realize that they were obligated to uh, share you know with the media but i guess media are people too right you guys are the public as well right? <laughs> that's what i yeah, can say pe- <laughs> yep. when journalists I call. are people too yep exactly so. <laughs> I, I didn't think of that please forgive me if it sounds condescending i i, I just meant that in a literal sense, but um, I, no, I do no, know the IRS. Uh, no, I, 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 t- I took it as a light-hearted comment, and there, there are uh, politicians <laughs> and others who think they're the enemy of the state. So you know, it's, uh, it's all. I, I know that's right. I, I thank God for the media every day, and more so today than yesterday, for obvious reasons. <laughs> that we, we, yes, we shall not. <laughs> we shall not have to go further. <laughs> having fun. So, Peter, you, you worked in media and you covered philanthropy and ultimately you rose to managing editor of the Chronicle of Philanthropy. And, and I'll liken that to the Wall Street Journal of Philanthropy. And you did this before you starting your you started your own firm. So I think you know just a little bit about what the media finds to be of interest and newsworthy. So what makes a nonprofit story newsworthy? Well, it, some of it depends on, on what the publication is and, and what they cover. For, for the Chronicle, for, for sure, um, you know, their audience is other nonprofit professionals and foundation leaders. So, you know, what is of interest to that audience about what you're doing is very different than what might be of interest in your local newspaper, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, if you're pitching, if you're trying to get in the Chronicle of Philanthropy, you really have to think about, um, you know, what you're doing that might interest other nonprofits. Are you, are you working on an issue in a new or different way? Have you come up with an innovative way to raise money from certain types of donors? Have you, is there a trend that you're seeing with your work that might be of interest to other nonprofit leaders who might be reading the Chronicle? So, you know, mm-hmm. thinking about, 
um, you know, and, and, and this is, might be a little easier, actually, for, for somebody who's a nonprofit trying to get into the Chronicle. What would interest you about another nonprofit halfway across the country that, you know, what about what they're doing would interest you? What would be newsworthy? Um, it might not be the story about your annual fundraising dinner, um, because mm-hmm. every nonprofit has that. But <laughs> if you have an innovative thing that you're trying with your dinner or if you um, – you know, have found a, a, an interesting way to raise money that, that others hadn't thought of, that's going to be way more interesting. But what's interesting is when I was working at the Chronicle all those years, we would get so many press releases from, from reporters or, or from nonprofits, excuse me, that were pitching things like their annual dinner that next Friday. And it's like, why, you know, why are you even spending time <laughs> pitching those for the Chronicle philanthropy? That's not something that they're going to cover. So, you know, really thinking about what is unique and different for the audience that you're pitching to is, you know, that that the the outlet covers that you're pitching to is really is really key there. And that you know, we could we could spend hours talking about, um, you know, what makes a great pitch. But but really, you know, try to think about who the audience is and what might be of interest to them, and use that as your guide. Um, the other mm-hmm. thing um, that we find really, and, and Antoinette and I love talking about this, is really finding out what interests the reporters you're pitching to and spending time, you know, getting to know the reporter, you know, reading or watching her work and seeing the kinds of stories that she covers on a day-to-day basis and thinking about how you can plug into that. You know, what are things that mm-hmm. you do as an organization that would interest that reporter um, and, and maybe even asking them what they're looking for and what they're working on and seeing if you might be able to kind of match up what you're doing with what they're working on. Mm-hmm. Now, what if they tell you, no, you know what, I, I'm not really that interested, but then they call you and ask you, you know, if, if you know about such and such a, or if you know other people who might be an expert in that issue, um, is is that helpful for them to give up the information or should people just kind of play their cards close to the vest and say, no, I'm going to guard this relationship with the reporter? <laughs> That's a good question. I, I really, I, I mean, I, I think it's really helpful whenever you get an opportunity to try to, especially if your goal is to get more coverage and, and to get your name out there more and, and the work you're doing out there more to be as helpful to the reporter as you can. And in some cases, passing them on to another, you know, another nonprofit or another organization that might be a better fit for the story they're working on. It, it might not mm-hmm. pay immediate dividends for you, but um, that reporter is going to remember that you helped them out and that you, you kind of pointed them in the right direction. And they're more likely to come back to you later when they're working on something else and trust you when you might come to them later with something that you, you would like them to try to cover. Um, you know the, the key the, the key word in media relations is immediate relations, which is you know kind of building a relationship. <laughs> so, you know, um, there are some cases where you're going to want to play your cards close to the vest if somebody is reaching out to you on a critical story or or trying to to get you to spill the beans about something you know that you you don't necessarily want to talk about, but. Um, we find it to be really helpful whenever you can to, to try to be as helpful and upfront with reporters as you can, even if it means kind of sending them in another direction when you can't, when you can't give them the best answer. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, Peter, is there a difference between the way you pitch the media um, based on the source, say, printed media versus Twitter 
the versus what television, even though I wonder if some people know the difference, but you know, I'm just just wondering if there's a difference. Um, well, in terms of what they cover, it's certainly, it's very, you know, different mediums and different reporters, you know, are going to be interested in covering different things. But at, at the end of the day, what you really want to do when you're reaching out to a reporter, especially for the first time, is, is you know, maybe not come at them first with a specific sales pitch for a story that you want them to work on, but maybe, you know, come to them um, you know, with an introduction and offering them help, finding out how you can help them, you know, with what they're covering, whether it's mm-hmm. introducing them to a source at your organization or making yourself available to them as a resource when they are looking for information. Um, I've had success also with reporters, you know, suggesting story ideas to them and them having them say, yeah, I'm not really interested in those. And, and, but, you know, um, here's what I am working on, and then working with them to to try to find a way to help them with what they're working on. It, it I think regardless of, of whether they're, you know, online, if they're writing for a newspaper, if they're a TV host, um, you know, really, you know, trying to, to get at how you can help them is, is really key to all of this. And you, it, mm-hmm. you know, it may not get you the results you want right away, but over time you're seeding some relationships that are really going to pay off. Mm-hmm. No, that's great. That's great. I want to remind our listening audience that you're listening to the Nonprofit Utopia podcast, and we're speaking with Peter Panapento and Antoinette Kerr, authors of Modern Media Relations for Nonprofits, Creating an Effective PR Strategy for Today's World. We'll be taking questions right now, and for those of you who may not be right in front of the computer, the call-in number is 347-884-8121. Again, that number is 347-884-8121. And you can also post questions in the live chat room. And I noticed that we do have a caller. I'm going to call on this person, make this person's mic live. Um, and if you have a question or comment, please share that phone number is 773-624-0585. I'm going to make your mic live, and if you have a question, um, please share. Your your mic is live right now. Hello? Okay, it, it, does, it does not appear that this person has a question. I'm going to ask you one more time. You might be at work doing something else, but I'm going to call on 773-624-0585. If you have a question or comment, please share. Okay. It doesn't a person is going to to speak. Um, so this question is for both of you, you know, what are some of the do's and don'ts of approaching the, the press? And then I'll get into Antoinette's question. Peter, I Antoinette, can answer one. Yeah. Yeah, I know we, uh, 
I know we talked about um, one of the big things, and I'm I'm actually I deal with this quite a bit in in my role now and working with nonprofits. So people want to ask if they can see my story before it runs. Mm-hmm. Um, as a journalist, I would lose my job if I did that. But it mm-hmm. happens quite a bit that people say, "Can I see your story?" And so one thing we tried to help people understand in the book is really understanding journalistic integrity. It doesn't offend mm-hmm. me anymore, but when I first started working in the business, I really would get offended by it. I thought, you know, don't you know that's like rule break, like deal breaker number one for a journalist with a news organization, um, because that crosses the line of independent journalism, and it really mm-hmm. um, is an integrity issue. So, you know, basically you're asking someone to, you know, break a major rule in journalism by asking them that. And I know it's unintentional Mm -hmm. that people don't mean it to be, but that's a big no-no. I also think a big no-no is um, to put, you know, especially for a weekend or evening event. So, you know, if your organization is having a fundraiser and you send out your press release, a lot of times, you know, if you're having a 5K on a Saturday, the journalist is not going to call your office if they have questions, you know, or if they can't mm-hmm. find you or some more information. You know, we're talking we need an after-hours phone number and, and some contact information. So rather than that being a no-no, a yes-yes would be to provide, you know, a cell phone number and your media contact. Mm-hmm. Those are two big things for me, and I think they're very small and practical. They don't take a lot of time or money. Just don't ask to read the story and, and remember to include your after-hours phone number. So, Peter, I know you probably have a couple no-nos in your wheelhouse. Sure, and we've, we've covered a little of them all about it already. I think one thing to, to try to avoid doing is, is, you know, kind of just pitching stories to folks who aren't likely to cover them. I, I mentioned sending um, sending releases about your annual dinner to the Chronicle of Philanthropy. I mean, you know, the more <laughs> you send things like that, the more you're going to get tuned out later when you actually have something important to, to pitch. So, you know, really, you know, not knowing your audience, and in this case the audience being the reporter or editor you're pitching to, is, is, is definitely a no-no. But on the other side of it, you know, one thing that we, we think is a, a – Sanswinette said a yes-yes – is – is is to really position yourself as a resource and as somebody who is is there as much to help the reporter as you are having the reporter help you. I think the more you can go into it viewing it as a relationship and not as you just trying to push stories at them, I think the more likely you are to get to have success in a lot of cases. Um, and and you know other things too are you know you know, making sure you, you take some time to, to understand some of the basic rules of reporting. Like, first of all, you know, that when you're talking to a reporter, unless you specify otherwise, um, that conversation is considered on, on the record. So um, even if it's, mm-hmm. if you think it's a throwaway conversation, you know, what you say or the information you present could end up in the newspaper or on television. Um, so, you know, being careful to make sure that any, anything you say is something you're comfortable having them publish uh, <laughs> is, is really important, too. So, um, you know, we, uh, I've had a number, of, um, a number of instances where people thought that they were, you know, they were not on mic or they were, you know, just saying something as, you know, casually as a friend, so to speak, to a reporter and then have it, you know, published later. And, 
and getting their nose butt out of joint a little bit. Just, you know, understanding that unless mm-hmm. you say, hey, you know, this is off the record or this isn't something I'd like you to, to, to report on, um, but I'd like to tell you this for background, you know, m- you know make sure you take steps to, to kind of qualify some of that and, and understand that, you know, what, what you're sharing is, is fair game. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I guess getting back to the nuts and bolts, um, Antoinette, the difference between a press release and a media alert, can you share with us, you know, the differences and subtle nuances for each? So the, the press release and the media alert, or some people call it the media advisory, are different in the mm-hmm. sense that the media alert or advisory is typically notifying the media that they need to uh, be aware of something or that they need to come to something. So if you're having a press conference and you're not really giving out the information, you're having a press conference where you're, you know, sharing, you're sharing the results of like maybe you have some data that uh, you want to share and, you know, you mm-hmm. plan on presenting it at that time. So you're really giving the media a heads up that they need to attend something or, you know, maybe even be aware of something in a really brief sense versus a press release that the press release is, is about the who, what, where, when, and why, but it also goes a little into, like, for a small amount of time into the how on occasion. And it also talk, mm-hmm. it could include um, really great quotes from your organization. You wouldn't want to put that in the media advisory. The media advisory is just to make an announcement, typically. Peter, I don't know mm-hmm. if you want to add anything on to the difference between the advisory or the or the press release. No, I think you covered it really well. I think the press release is really the the kind of the complete who, what, where, when, why, how of what you know what you're announcing, and and you're kind of positioning that news release as something that reporters could you know take pieces from and use in their story. Um, whereas that advisory, yeah, is really kind of a heads up of something that's coming up. Um, one thing that you can also do if you want to try to um, give reporter, let's say you're making an announcement on Thursday morning at nine and you want to give a reporter a, a kind of a head start in gathering information for that 9 a.m. news announcement that, you know, that you're going to be putting the release out on is you could offer them that news release on embargo saying that we're giving you this information now on the agreement that you're not going to publish it until 9 a.m. on Thursday and we're doing that so that you can actually publish a complete story then or report on a complete story then rather than, you know, kind of being behind the eight ball and having to do it all at 9 a.m. on Thursday. So there are some mm-hmm. things you can do um, with a news release, um, even though, it, you know, it, you, you want to give more complete information that might be available in that advisory by, you know, you know, negotiating in front of time or putting out a news release on embargo saying, you know, this information becomes public at 9 a.m. on Thursday, but here's all the information you need to do your job, basically. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So I want to remind our listening audience that you're listening to the Nonprofit Utopia podcast, and we're speaking with Peter Panapinto and Antoinette Kerr, authors of Media Relations for Nonprofits, Creating an Effective PR Strategy for Today's World. We'll be taking questions again if we get additional callers. If there are people who post in the chat room, I can read those questions. The call-in number is 347-884-8121. 
And before we get back to our interview, I want to let you know a little bit about Nonprofit Utopia. We are the ideal community for emerging nonprofit leaders, and we've created a safe environment in which our members can innovate, speak candidly about the issues and concerns they face on a daily basis, and share ideas and resources. You can visit www.nonprofitutopia.com and nonprofitutopia.mn.co, and I've got links to both of these on our episode page. So, Peter, um, one of the long-term field of expertise or nonprofit subsector, and I think you started touching a little bit on this when you talked about, you know, building relationships and, and making yourself useful, for, for lack of a better word. I'm not quoting you directly, but that's what I um, interpreted, you know, make yourself useful for the reporter, even if they're not covering you. So I believe that one way we can become thought leaders beyond establishing relationships where they feel comfortable coming back to you is by publishing op-ed pieces. So what are some of the strategies that you might recommend for nonprofits to use to get op-ed pieces published, particularly when they have very, very little experience? Yes, yes, and um, I, I would actually love to uh, to to uh, let folks know we also have a, a free ebook on op-eds actually that that I put together a little earlier this year that that goes a little bit deeper into this topic and we have a, quite a bit on it in the book too. But mm-hmm. you know, one of the, awesome. the key things question, is, wait, question yeah, for you, is Peter before you me? go further, yeah. where might where might we? find a link to that book. I'd like to share a link to the book if it's on your website and put it in the comment section and also share it in my in my network. I yes. think that's important. Um it's on a, it's on my company's website, uh term two dot co, but I will um I'll also send it to can I send it to you after or do you mm-hmm. need it does it need to go live? Um, um I can send it, it to you after and I'll post it. Okay, mm-hmm. great. Yeah, I will that, do that, that for sure. Yes. Um, okay. So I'm one sorry. of the things about op-eds, though, is they can be a really valuable tool um, for really trying to, to get, get the word out about uh, uh, an important topic or something that you, that you really want to kind of establish your organization's um, thought leadership around. Um, we found with op-eds, though, that they, that they can't be too overly promotional. They really what, what works best with op-eds is to really focus them on a topic that um, is going to motivate people to take action and maybe think a little bit differently about a topic that than they may have thought about it before. So, you know, if your organization has some new research or if there's something happening in the news that relates to your mission and you feel as though there's an aspect of it that hasn't been covered or talked about very much, you know, those are the types of topics that lend themselves well for op-eds, something where you can take a strong point of view on a topic and educate the public about it um, in a way that, you know, really establishes your, um, your credibility and knowledge on the topic, but doesn't do it in a way where, you know, you're just talking about your nonprofit and why it's great. You're really talking about you know, let's say, you know, you're, you're a healthcare nonprofit and you have a strong opinion about, um, you know, health insurance, you know, changes or, or mm-hmm. reform, you know, really kind of putting something together where you take a strong stand on an issue or kind of 
use it to educate people on an issue and, and provide information that they may not be getting through normal news coverage or through other opinions about that topic. So really kind of identifying mm-hmm. areas where you can take a strong stand on a topic and, and use that as a, as a way to kind of champion your cause or position some research that you've done or, or even spotlight um, organizations that are, are doing great work on, on that topic. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing to remember about op-eds, though, is that um, you're basically writing them on spec. You, you have to write the op-ed and, and present it to the, to the newspaper's uh, opinion page folks with the hope that they'll publish it. They get a number of those submissions every day, um, and there, mm-hmm. there's competition for that space. So um, you may actually put, you know, invest time in writing an op-ed and find out that they don't have the room to publish it, unfortunately. So... Um, mm-hmm. The great thing about doing this work today, though, is that even if, if, you know, that X newspaper doesn't want to run it, maybe, you know, another website would want to run it. Or in the worst case scenario, I guess, and it's still a good scenario, is you could publish it yourself on your website and point to it on your own social media channels. So um, Mm -hmm. you have opportunities now with some of that writing that you're doing around op-eds or, you know, some of those op-eds that you create. Uh, to get some value out of them, even if they aren't necessarily published by the paper. Mm-hmm. Oh, that is great. Antoinette, I know from experience it's very, very difficult to get media coverage for nonprofit events. And, you know, you and Peter have said as much earlier today on this episode, but at the same time, you provide great nuggets on how to make events media friendly. You want to share some snippets from your book? I will. Um, that section of the book was really, you know, really birthed out of things that I experienced and other journalists experienced and, you know, honestly complained about um, at times <laughs> as far as going to nonprofit events and um, or some good experiences that they had where they said, you know, this was great. I went to cover this nonprofit and they made it so easy for me to tell their story. And, you know, inevitably that re- is reflected in the story. For me, I can read a story and, and kind of feel whether the journalist likes what they're talking about, <laughs> or you can see that in a broadcast, or you can hear that come across in the radio. So if people are having good experiences at your event, then they're going to be happy journalists, and you can, you can sense that in their stories. Um, some of the things we talk about include having um, great online newsrooms that include mm-hmm. not only your press releases, but high-resolution photography, staff bios, you know, um, maybe even some high-quality video images that they can download. You know, feeding this beast of the 24-hour news cycle is a challenge for journalists, and all of the editors and producers um, are are wanting more. So it's not just about doing a newspaper story anymore. It's about having, you know, additional photography online that didn't run in print. So whatever you can do to really provide that in the online newsroom is great. Um, Another great thing is um, having a person assigned to the media uh, contacts. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, that person might not be your executive director. Your executive director could be, but that person Mm -hmm. would be, um, you know, available when the media representative arrives. I can't tell you how many times that I've gone to an event and can't find anybody who, you know, can give me a quote because the staff that's available, they don't feel comfortable. You know, I'm not the ED, I'm not the board chair, but that person isn't available. 
So that can be frustrating. And a couple of times I'll tell you I've left events and said, called my editor and said, not running this story because we couldn't find someone who we could quote. So, you know, having someone available and, and there for the media representative um, and making sure that your organization know who, who they want to be interviewed is important, mm-hmm. and then making sure that online newsroom is is up and running is really important. So those are a few little sneak peeks from the book. Okay, awesome, and thank you for that. And Peter, invariably nonprofits from time to time, you know, resort to crisis management. We all have crises. And, you know, not only do they have to do damage control, but they have to restore public trust, and as much harder to restore that public trust once you lose it. So what are some of the techniques that nonprofit organizations can use to manage crises? And I do realize that it will vary from nonprofit to nonprofit and from situation to situation. Well, I think the most important thing to do is is to have a plan before you have a crisis. So every um, every nonprofit really should should put you know, should have some crisis protocols in place for how they're going to deal with the media if something bad does happen or, you know, or if they are forced to respond to something in a really quick way. And, you know, some things that you should think about as you put that, you know, that crisis plan together are, you know, who's empowered to speak for your organization um, and what's the process for making sure that person is available to the media right away. What um, what mm-hmm. really kills any organization if they are in a in a crisis situation is radio silence and not having somebody coming out and being kind of the face and voice of the organization to talk about um, it, it kind of talk about and redirect the conversation quickly. Um, the longer you're silent, um, the longer um, other critics and other voices and social media can kind of blow up around you. So having a plan ahead of time for who is going to be the person who goes out and, and kind of makes a public statement and is available to reporters in those situations is key and, and kind of making sure that that person is equipped and ready to go and, and doesn't disappear on you uh, when, mm-hmm. when something happens, because a lot of times those crises don't happen between nine and five on, you know, Tuesday on a Tuesday, they sometimes happen on a night or a weekend. So, you know, making sure that you have a way to get at that person and that they, they can make themselves available is key. Um, having some key messages, and, and things that you, you, are, you do want to talk about and, and be available to you ahead of time are also key. So just kind of knowing, you know, generally, you know, you don't know what the crisis might be, but kind of knowing what you want to reinforce and position about your organization ahead of time is really crucial. So, mm-hmm. you know, being able to, to, you know, you're obviously going to have to respond to whatever the situation is as it happens, but having some bedrock messaging about what your organization does, what it stands for, um, you know, the impact you're having in the community, those things, those, having those things kind of queued up and ready to go so that you don't have to be fumbling around looking for them if you have to respond quickly mm-hmm. and comment on something is really key. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, and really just, you know, making sure that, you know, you have um, – you've kind of identified what kind of culture you want your organization to have and, 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 and knowing, you know, generally the kind of tone that you want to put forth in a situation like that ahead of time is really key, really knowing who you are and what you stand for and, 
and and how um, how you really want to try to position your organization even in the face of something bad is is really important there. Mm-hmm. Okay, we are running out of time. Um, I, I guess we've got two options. Um, we can stop right now, or if you are available for say ten minutes more, we can get through the end of the questions. Um, it's it's your call. I don't sure. Yeah, I I'm happy to stay time. on it. Answer that. Do you still have a little more time? I do have time. Okay. Okay. Let's do awesome. It. Okay. Great. Thank you. I was so scared. I was about to cut us off, but I'm like, I'm enjoying this too much. <laughs> too much. <laughs> so, so thank you. I, I really appreciate it. So, Internet, I, I believe, and I could be wrong, that journalists prefer human interest stories. And while the data can strengthen the stories, I think that, you know, if you get a little bit boring and and stories that are heavy on data are very hard to sell. Yet you and Peter devote a whole section of your book on how to make stories about data attractive to the media. So you got any pointers you'd like to share with us? I do have a few pointers, and then I'll throw it back to Peter, because Peter is really like the king of making data attractive. Like, I, I, I have to give him his props. I've seen him do it so many times. Um, I just say from my perspective, I think, you know, just making sure that it's it, um, it newsworthy is something that's important. And when I say that, I mean, you know, how is, how is this data relevant to the entire community? You know, what do people mm-hmm. need to take from that? And I use an example of some research that um, – you know, housing organizations have had or United Ways have had. United Way has some great data about self-sufficiency. And one thing that they did with the self-sufficiency data, um, instead of just putting it out there and just bogging people down, they reached out to reporters and said, you know, here are some human interest stories about how, you know, you would need to make, and in this particular county or community, that the person would need to make $20 an hour in order to completely take care of all of their needs and not rely on any of the nonprofits in the community. And mm-hmm. that, for a community where, you know, that had its economic challenges, it helped um, politicians as well as other people understand that self-sufficiency wasn't just because of a lack of trying or that people weren't just not working and that the nonprofits were actually picking up and providing essential services. You know, making sure that you take that data and make it relevant to the entire community, not just your cause, is really important. Mm-hmm. And I'll let Peter share um, more about some of the work he's done because I think he's made some great strides in that area. Yeah, okay, thanks. great. And, thanks. And, and yeah, and I, I think you're both you you both made a good point about trying to put a face on it, right? It, it it's not just about sending a release with a bunch of numbers in it when you have a new report coming out, but, but trying to find real life examples and people who might be, you know, who might be impacted by um, the report that you're putting out. Or, you know, if you're, a, if you're putting out a new report on, on hunger or homelessness in your region, you know, being able to, 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 you know, show somebody who's been able to, you know, who, who kind of puts a face on the figures that you're putting out there and can kind of talk about what they mean is really important. But in terms of like looking at the data itself, when you've done a survey or you have a new report, I, I really think about it like you're almost like interviewing your data. You're, look, you're asking some basic <laughs> questions as you're analyzing the data to see if there are some interesting answers that come out of it. 
So, you know, if you're looking at data over multiple years, for instance, you, you know, you ask what's changed, what's changed in this data, what's different? Um, what are the, what are the one or two key trend lines that are really interesting here is, mm -hmm. <laughs> is, is hunger, you know, going down in our communities, is it going up? And if so, is it, you know, at what pace is it going up? Um, are, mm -hmm. you know, you know, really trying to identify what's changed and what's different. Um, the other thing to do is look for patterns in data um, and see if there are any um, any outliers or anything that that kind of like just really jumps out as being um, different. Um, and at the same point, uh, so you know, <coughs> if if there's a if there's just a real spike in something or a real change in something, really focusing on that um, is can be really helpful. At the same point in time, looking at you know, whether there are some patterns or, or differences that, um, that really stand out. And I, I, an example I like to use is we, we've done some work with the Peer-to-Peer -peer Professional Forum, which is a group that does, um, that, that um, is a professional group for, for uh, professional fundraisers who lead, like, charity walks and rides and runs. Um, they do a mm -hmm. study each year of the largest of those, you know, runs, walks, and runs, or runs, walks, and rides called the peer-to-peer -peer fundraising 30. Um, and, you know, for multiple years, they were seeing a change, a, a decline in kind of the amount raised by those large organizations. Um, but when we dug a little deeper into the data, instead of just saying, hey, fundraising for these 30 organizations was down, we kind of sliced and diced it a little bit and found that, um, for certain types of organizations, um, revenues was actually up, and it was really just a handful of, of certain types of organizations where it was down. And we started, you know, talking about that data through the lens of these, you know, younger, newer, um, or you know, campaigns that were really gaining momentum. And and in doing that, we ended up, you know getting quite a bit of coverage, including on NPR, about how peer-to-peer -peer fundraising was changing. And it wasn't just the same two or three large programs that were dominating it anymore, but it were a lot of, you know, all of these types of organizations that were growing, and there's actually more, more campaigns now than ever before. Um, so really mm -hmm. trying to find ways where you can, you can kind of dig into the data and find trends kind of that are beyond um, – beyond the obvious, something that, that really mm -hmm. points to a pattern or a change or a difference, and, and not bogging people down with all of the data in your release, you know, really focusing on, you know, one or two or three really key things that really stand out as being useful and interesting as, a, as kind of the hook to get people into it. Mm -hmm. And then, Peter, you spoke earlier about, you know, the key to media relations being just that, you know, it's media and it's relations. So, so just like <laughs> fundraising, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like it, it's so obvious, right? But it sometimes the obvious eludes us. But um, <laughs> when we look at fundraising, <laughs> we know that's relationship driven, but we don't necessarily think of you know managing our relationships properly with the media in order to maintain visibility over the long term. So, I mean, I know you've touched on it throughout the podcast, you know, how you can go about establishing and maintaining relationships with the media, especially, you know, if you're new at this. Right, right. And the parallel to fundraising is really, is, is really right on. I mean, if, 
if you've worked for a nonprofit for any amount of time, you know, you know, some of the key tenets of, of fundraising and what's, what's successful there. And a lot of the same things are, are valuable in, in media relations, you know, listening to the other person, um, thanking them for, you know, when they've done something that, you know, uh, in this case, maybe writing a story that mentions your organization, thanking them, following up with them, um, really focusing on the relationship first instead of the ask. And, and with that, mm-hmm. the ask comes later um, is, is mm-hmm. really key. But in, in terms of starting a relationship with a reporter that you've identified as somebody that you want to get to know, um, you know, maybe not coming at them with a bunch of pitches right away, maybe coming at them and, you know, finding out more about them, offering to have coffee with them, offering to, to give them some time with your CEO or executive director to learn a little bit more about your organization and what trends they're seeing. Um, you know, coming at them where you're, you're, it, it's ma- you're making it clear to them that you're as much of a resource to them as they are to you. And, and really kind of starting at that relationship level is so key. Um, <clears throat> there are some things you can do on social media too, you know, simply, you know, following and retweeting and sharing stories that reporters are posting on their own Twitter accounts um, can kind of start to build a little credibility and show them that you're interested in their topic and their work. Little Mm -hmm. steps like that really go a long way to to show the reporter that you're not just there to kind of, you know, pitch your story at them and, and try to get them to do what you want them to do, but that you're there actually to support their work, help spread the word about what they're doing, complimenting them on the work they're doing and, and serving as a resource to them is really kind of the key thing in all of this, no matter what your nonprofit does, no matter what you're trying to accomplish with the media, if you kind of go into it with the idea that, that you're here to build a relationship in the same way that you're looking to build a relationship with your donors, you're going to be much more successful than somebody who's just kind of coming out and and just pushing stories all the time. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. Antoinette, did you have anything to add? I uh, I don't think I have anything to add. I think that, you know, I love that Peter mentioned before that really, you know, I say this about social media. I say social media is social and media mm-hmm. relations is about relations. And I really feel like if people can establish good, good strong relationships with media outlets, and that doesn't just include traditional media, it includes podcasters. Um, those are, those are, I've seen nonprofits have great, a great deal of success with people who have podcasts who are related to their interests. For example, um, one organization that does historic preservation found a podcast that really talks about historic preservation. And so they were able to find a whole group of donors and um, supporters through a podcast rather than a traditional media source. So people can be creative mm-hmm. about their media outreach and, and really develop relationships with those in journalists and other people outside of mainstream media. Okay. And to that point, you know, sometimes staying in the media spotlight has great upside. You know, after you've established your relationships, it's only um, natural, I think, for you to be in the spotlight, provided your organization has something newsworthy, but it's not without risks. What are some of the risks associated with, I guess I'm about to show my age here, flying too close to the sun? <laughs> so in terms of, of 
what are some of the risks that you have to, to try to, to be careful of as you're building these relationships with the media? Yeah, you're in the spotlight, and, you know, for a while it seems like everybody loves you, but the same media that light the limelight forever, uh, if you stay there, you also become a target. So so what is some of the risks sure. of being in, yeah. in the spotlight? Yeah, well, certainly, you know, the the more you're out there, the, the more likely you are to to have somebody that wants to raise some some critical questions and and look at at what you're doing in maybe a negative way. Um, I think the key through all of that, we already talked a little bit about having a crisis plan in place, and and crises can happen whether or not you are um, you are courting media coverage. There are a lot of groups that mm-hmm. that um, that purposely try to fly under the radar because they don't want media coverage and and it, it might be because they are they do have something to hide, but on the other side of it, um, you know, really just you know the key to all of this is is being as as open and transparent as you can be while also being honest. And, um, if if you are doing good work and and even if there is room for for people to criticize you, if you're doing good work and you have a, a strong message and you can kind of back it up with with data and information and you can be open and accessible. Um, even if, if even if there is some criticism along the way, overall you're you're reaching more donors. You're 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 advancing your issues a little bit more aggressively. You're kind of inspiring people to take more action, even if even if it does bring some controversy along the way. Um, it can be mm-hmm. really valuable to your organization. And there are a lot of nonprofits that are are very successful, and and at the same point in time, are, they. They are they draw a lot of scrutiny and and you know whether it's partisan attacks because they are too liberal or too conservative or um, or because they um, you know they pay their executive director a lot of money or whatever um, there are there are folks that are going to be looking to be critical of the work you're doing and as, but as long as you're staying true to your ideals and you're operating ethically um, and you can and you can kind of back up what you're doing with with you know with reasoning, um, you know, by and large, I think you're going to be well served, even if you get some, some negative coverage along the way. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's great. And answer that before we close out, did you have anything you want to add to that? Well, I just like to, you know, there's that old adage and, you know, um, my grandmother used to say it to me all the time. If, if, if somebody's not talking about you, then you aren't doing anything. So, you know, it is really, you know, it just comes with the territory. And even if you look on social media and you look and, you know, we call them the trolls, uh, people who will come mm-hmm. and, you know, just kind of hide behind the computer and write negative things. We tell nonprofits, really be prepared to either decide if you're going to respond to that or if you're just going to keep doing the good work that you do and let, you know, your mm-hmm. supporters handle that. So, you know, it's to be expected. And I think right now, especially in this climate, you really can't be shy about sharing the good work that you do. And um, I tell people, if you don't share your story, then someone else will, will tell it for you. So I really do mm-hmm. encourage nonprofits to, to, to get out there and not be afraid to, to control and, and put out empowered message, messages with the understanding that there will be people who don't always, you know, agree with you or support the work that you do. Oh, my goodness, this is awesome, 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 awesome. And I, I just want to say thank you so much. We have 
come to the end of our show. And again, I'd like to tell Aunt Antoinette Carr for being our guests. Peter and Antoinette are authors of Modern Media Relations for Nonprofits, Creating an Effective PR Strategy for Today's World. And again, you can go to the comment section, and the comment section is not going away. Um, you can go to the comment section of this episode, and you can click onto the link and go to the Amazon page to buy the book. I strongly recommend it. And again, I am not a journalist, so I can say that. So <laughs> without further ado, <laughs> and, and, and I want people to know, too, that um, my solicitation is totally unsolicited, if that makes sense. You know, Peter and Antoinette did not come onto the show with the understanding that I would be promoting their book. They made the mistake of sending me an advanced copy, and I loved it. <laughs> so, Thank you for so reading it and having tell- us. We appreciate it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I have to give credit where credit is due. <laughs> so, so, Peter, did you want to share any parting thoughts and tell our listening audience how they can get in touch with you? Absolutely. Well, thank, first of all, thank you so much for the kind words on the book. We've really enjoyed the conversation today, or I, I won't speak for Antoinette on that, but I'll speak for myself. <laughs> uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. The questions are excellent, and we really appreciate the endorsements on the book. We, Our goal with it is to really to just try to help nonprofits to be more empowered with their media relations and to get more good stories told, and, and hopefully um, hopefully we can get it into his hands, the hands of as many people as possible to do that. But um, if folks want to reach, reach me directly, um, my email address is peter at turn, T-U-R-N hyphen to T-W-O, and that's my direct email address, and I'm, I'm happy to talk to anybody who listened to this podcast. Okay, and do I have your permission to add your contact information to the slideshow that will also stay Absolutely. with the recording. Yes. Okay. Sure. And the same for you, Antoinette? Same for me, yes, absolutely. Okay. Awesome. Okay, and with that, um, did you have any any closing remarks, Antoinette? I did not, other than thank you so much. I love the questions, and I don't think I've laughed as much on a podcast with Peter, so this has been really good. <laughs> thank you for thank you for really sharing in this way. It's been a lot of fun. Well, it's been a lot of fun for me. And believe you me, I I exercise a lot of restraint. Anybody who knows me knows I laugh like a hyena. And I've listened to past <laughs> podcasts, and I, I have to restrain myself. But I, I really, really did enjoy this conversation. I hope to have you guys on you know, at some time in the future, if you don't mind. Sure, we'd love that. Okay. Awesome, awesome. So I <laughs> want to thank our listening audience. <laughs> I want to thank our listening audience today for sharing with this conversation. You may not have called in, but I know that you're there, and our numbers will tell us that. Um, we have included instructions in the comment section for you to go to iTunes and rate this episode. And I want to make sure that you join us next week. Our guest will be Shelby Parchman. He's the founder of In Urban Strategies, LLC, 
and he'll be sharing marketing strategies nonprofit organizations can use to get maximum impact in a short period of time. So I'm going to look forward to a very lively discussion with him as well. So until then, take care. And again, thank you so much. And Peter, I, I, I really enjoyed this conversation. I enjoyed the book, and I will let others know about the book and share that resource, you know, when I get the link to it, you know, within my network, including the community. So thank you again. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Mm-hmm.